When it comes to women's health, sometimes things are growing like polyps, cysts, fibroids, and that kind of vibe that we don't want to be. And on today's show, we're looking at why and we're looking at what to do. Uh, and that's what we're diving into on the Low Tox Life podcast. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 341 and I have a wonderful health professional joining me for the first time on the show, Catherine Maslin. So Catherine is a naturopath. She is the founder of The Shift Clinic and an expert in women's health. And she's going to be talking us through what sets the stage for findings such as cysts, polyps, fibroids, um, when it comes to, uh, you know, crappy, uh, crappy news that we get from maybe a scan that we get done. Um, but we also talk about what to do to prevent the likelihood of these appearing, but also what to do when you find out you do have one of these things, what caused it, um, what can we do about it, whether we're bringing in acute measures, uh, or holistic measures or a combination of both. I think you'll find that by the end of today's show, you're going to have a much clearer picture what sets the stage for these uh, things to pop up from time to time in our lives and what to do about it when we find out about them. Now, Catherine's story is a powerful one in terms of why she became a practitioner, and I'm going to leave that in her own words. And of course, you can have a look on the show notes. So I hope you enjoy the learnings from today's show. I think it's fantastically powerful information from both a preventative and a treatment strategy, depending on where you're at, and just really important good general knowledge for women's health. Uh, it's almost impossible to get to the end of your life without finding out about one of these things and uh, knowing what to do, uh, including things like knowing what point in a cycle to scan to get the most accurate results and picture uh, is uh, truly beneficial. So I'm going to hook into that conversation in a little minute. And now I want to let you know that we, of course, have our two wonderful sponsors uh, who helped me put together this fabulous weekly show. I hope you think it's fabulous. And that is BioFirst and OzClimate. So BioFirst are with us just for July and you have $10 off any order from their range uh, with the code uh, low. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, with the code winter. Sorry, I'm doing a huge batch uh, before I go overseas and I'm working remotely and not taking my uh, microphone. And this is episode six of uh, five that I've already recorded. And so I might be twisting my words a little bit. So $10 off any order, $65 or more with the code winter. And you've heard me talking about their Manuka Defense and Manuka Soother range and uh, their fantastic liquid herbal support medicines, either if you're feeling like you need a bit of an insurance policy over the cool months with the drier air during the days, then that Manuka uh, Soother, um, well, the Manuka Defense range really is your insurance policy. But if you need soothing, you got a lurgy, you really feel like you need a bit of extra support, the Manuka Soother range is fantastic and you've got 
UMF 10 plus grade Manuka honey from New Zealand. You have Australian river mint, kakadu plum, pomegranate, beetroot, thyme and aniseed, which by the way, together make a stunning combination, both reducing oxidative stress and boosting nitric oxide levels. And the great thing to think about when we're deciding what to use for these moments is that liquid formulations tend to be faster absorbed and faster acting and better absorbed than pills and capsules when it comes to immune defense. So while there's absolutely a place for like, you know, you've got to take your vitamins, et cetera, that help boost your immune system, when it comes to plant-based syrups and, uh, and formulations like sprays, the liquid really is what you want to go for to make a difference. So that's just a little uh, reminder on that front from the technical perspective. Uh, and of course, I'll just remind you of the offer again, $10 off any order, $65 or more across the whole site. So if you're a huge fan of their amazing skincare products like the Manuka Skin Saver and the Ultra Sensitive Skin Lotion, you can get those as well with this offer and your code is winter. This one's for the Aussies and for the Americans and their website is bio-first.com.au. Enjoy that offer. And of course, reminding you that we have 10% off all year round with the wonderful Oz Climate Range. So that is their Winix Air Purifiers and their Dehumidifiers. And I've been talking this July about window condensation. And I really wanted to highlight this because A, it's something that pops up a lot in the wintertime for people. And if we leave it unchecked, it can start to mean that mold uh, growth is encouraged because it's wet and we all know mold loves moisture. And then those spores, once they're on your windowsill, actually start to give off all of their icky stuff like the mycotoxins. And then before you know it, it's in your carpet, it's in your wardrobe and the levels of mold spores in your indoor air atmosphere are growing. Now, I'm not saying that to freak you out. I'm just saying that if you get a dehumidifier for your bedroom or areas in your home where you are noticing this morning condensation and leave it on till lunchtime, you're going to dry out that space. You're going to prevent mold growth and mold spores from starting to migrate around your room and create mold growth in things like your wardrobe with your leather goods, your clothes starting to smell musty, etc. You can avoid it all with a dehumidifier. So I think a dehumidification strategy is essential. And if you live in a cooler climate, you might also actually want to look at the cool seasons, which really should be called the all seasons. It's just that it's good with cool climate as well, especially uh, for your bedroom. Now I got asked the other day, what size, you know, my bedroom's about um, five by six meters and me living in my tiny apartment, I was like, oh gee, that'd be lovely. Um, but for a five by six meter, I'd probably go go the 20 litre. Um, but if you have a smaller single bedroom size or a compact double, then you're absolutely fine with the 16 litre compact. Um, and that 16 litre compact so portable. You can pop it in the bathroom after the showers. You can chuck it in the laundry if you're doing a dryer load and you don't have a condenser dryer. Very portable and easy to use. And it draws a huge amount of water out. You could empty it twice over a, over a waking day. Um, that's how quickly it can remove moisture from the atmosphere. So 10% off your code is Lotox Life, and that one is just for the Aussies. Uh, great brand that I absolutely love sharing the wisdom from. Uh, and love hearing the feedback. So if you've got great feedback, please let me know. I love sharing it with the guys over at Oz Climate. 
Now, let's get talking women's health and how to support it best to avoid things proliferating and growing that we do not want to enjoy. Hello, Catherine. How are you doing? I am great, Alex. How are you? I'm excellent. I am thrilled to have you on the show. And this is a topic I have wanted to do for a while, which is, as I said in the intro, things that are growing that shouldn't be growing and what we can do about it, how we can investigate, how we can support. So I know this is a passion of yours as well, something you and your team tackle in the clinic on a daily basis. And I'd love to first get a little window into how you found holistic health as a career to uh, to jump into, because that story is always really interesting for people to to hear. Yeah. Sure. And I guess like a lot of people, I, I do have a bit of a story and a background with that. My background is I'm from Melbourne. I grew up in the western suburbs of Melbourne, fairly low socioeconomic kind of area. And I had a bit of a history of domestic violence. So my father was an alcoholic. So I had a fairly tumultuous childhood. And I guess I took the expected trajectory of, you know, leaving school, hanging out with friends. And then it went to smoking marijuana and not being at school. And one thing led to another. And by the time I was the age of 15, I was homeless and living on the streets of Melbourne and addicted to heroin. So it was a, a pretty huge part of my life for me. I was very fortunate to get pulled off the streets by the Salvation Army and they put me in this halfway house for girls. And I remember that I got a phone call from a friend of mine and she said, hey, we're moving to North Queensland. Mum and I, would you like to come? And that was a massive sliding doors moment for me because after some convincing to my family who had to kind of sign that away to let me go, I moved at the age of 15 to far North Queensland right into the Daintree rainforest. So I was living in a house without electricity, wasn't wearing shoes, so just completely different environment. And it was there that I began my journey of healing. So being in the Daintree was very healing for me and getting out of that environment. But one thing that happened was I met a family there and the mother of the family became like a second mother to me. Her name was Jenny. And Jenny was a beautiful woman who had an autoimmune disease called lupus. And it was the first time in my life that I'd ever really seen anyone that was really, truly sick. And the longer I knew Jenny, the more her medication cabinet grew and grew and she got sicker and sicker. And I thought there's got to be a better way. And as it so happened, I stumbled across a book on herbal medicine and I was like, oh my God, how does anyone not know about this? Like, how are people right. not using this? This is amazing. Yeah. And I decided to move down to Brisbane to study a Bachelor of Western Herbal Medicine, which turned into naturopathy. And unfortunately, while I was there, Jenny's daughter called me one day while I was on campus and she said, oh, Kat, mum's passed away. And, um, you know, I'll never forget that moment because she was the first person in my life that I really lost. And it, she was 45 years old. And it really strengthened my resolve to go, we've got to do better by people. There has to be a better way. And I still carry Jenny with me in everything I do. So I guess for me, my passion and inspiration comes from my own personal healing journey, overcoming my health problems, my trauma, you know, on that journey. And, um, you know, from seeing other people that have walked this walk and how their lives could be different as a result of it. So that's what I'm really passionate about. And how amazing to have those moments become springboards, you know, yeah. when for so many people, when you don't get those sliding doors moments, 
it can just continue to be tragic. And for you, thankfully, because you're here with us uh, sharing everything that you share now, uh, that to me is just so special that you were given that sliding door moment because you got to do so much with it. And did you ever feel or do you feel in retrospect that that moment made you feel like you really had to make a contribution? You had to find a way because you were given that opportunity to change things. Yeah, I guess for me, I am a really big believer that everything happens for a reason and that I'm a creator of my own reality. And I feel like I had to experience what I had to experience in order to bring what I need to bring to people. And there's no way that I would have the empathy and the knowledge that I do to be able to do that. So at the time, consciously, no, but looking back, yeah, definitely. It was very, very important. And for me, I think my superpower is really helping people to connect with that and see that journey and see that really holistic viewpoint, which where naturopathy is very holistic. Yes, we look at stuff holistically. I think a lot of the time what people are missing is looking at the landscape of their entire health. What are all the parts that make you you that have led you to feel exactly as you're feeling today? And the emotional landscape is one that often is missed and it's hard for people to go there because it's scary. No, and you do have to be a bit brave to go to some of those places. But for me, and having seen thousands and thousands of people, I know that you have to understand the entire landscape and your story is part of that. Absolutely. Your story, your house. I mean, how recently has that only just joined the conversation? Uh, What kind of house are you living in? And now, thankfully, we're asking what kind of childhood did you have? And What have been some key moments in your timeline that really sent things haywire, um, either emotionally, physically or otherwise, and all so important in these puzzles? Yeah, they are. I'm writing a book at the moment on the process of healing because it's a process, right? And as you said, it's very easy, I think, for someone to go, all right, what are the things I have to eat? You can do that for a week, no problem. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but what are the, the supplements other... I have to take? And That's yeah. right. Mm. But it's that stuff in the background that really will drive whether you're going to get there or not, whether you're mm. going to keep eating that healthy diet, whether you're going to get to your end destination. And that's what I really am passionate about helping people with. How do you find out how you get to the end? What's stopping you? Yeah, exactly. I I love it too. And I think uh, if we don't unlock that piece that creates the fire in the belly to make it a part of our normal lives, then it will only ever be a fad or a health kick or and then I get to go back to normal because I'm good again. And we miss the point when we haven't done the whole bit of the work, right, when we do it that way. Exactly. Yeah. So let's look at women's health and... Uh, I guess I want to start with um, reproductive health because until menopause, there are a whole bunch of signs that we can work on our our health with um, that often present in all sorts of ways that we've talked about a lot on the show and I know you talk about a lot with your patients uh, and in your clinic. But how do we just sum up, I guess, what some of the major recurring themes are in something amiss in reproductive health? 
So we could talk about this for weeks, as you know. I know. It's like so, uh, one small question to start an interview that could be a three-day seminar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think the biggest thing to frame this with is we need to acknowledge as women that we run by cycles and we're very different to men. And it is the ebb and flow of these cycles that make it easy to get knocked off kilter or easier, right? There's more functionality going on down there. So we've got a uterus that changes through different phases of the cycle. We've got different hormones in different parts of the month. Some of us, uh, as we're transitioning into menopause, perimenopause, we're functioning different. So we have these differences. And the endocrine system is really sort of where it's at with all of it. And it is the system that will get knocked off kilter first, usually, Okay, depending on people and their physiology. But because of the complexity and symphony of it, it can easily get derailed. And this is why for women, the increased stresses in our environment through toxins, stress, emotions, all of that stuff, and the way that we live our lives, it isn't really conducive to great endocrine health. And this is why we're seeing such a crisis with so many women being diagnosed with these kind of conditions. And the other part of it is an awareness piece that, you know, 20, 30 years ago, many women were told by their doctors, and some still are, that there's nothing wrong with them. Oh, it's it's just in your head, you're hysterical, right? Inverted commas. So for me, the reason why we have so many issues with women's health is because of the complexity, because it can get knocked off kilter and because there's just so many things that we're battling against. Mm. And if if the endocrine system is the first system to get knocked over, then, I mean, that speaks to exactly why going low tox is such an important thing and cleaning up our products. Um, it's yeah, massive. It's huge. such a huge pillar of it. And it's, you know, it's to- toxins and stress, I would say, are the two biggest things for me that I'm talking about around these themes. And toxins are a stress on the body, if you want to look at it that way. But the amount of research that's coming out about toxins and fertility and women's health and how it's impacting us is flabbergasting. And it's, I guess, even more shocking to the fact that nothing's really being done about it. At a, at a policy level. So it is up to us to make our own decisions to not use these products as much as we can. Yeah, that's it. It's, um, it's yeah, everybody helping where we can. And, you know, that's one of the reasons I stepped into this because your friends start asking you, your family, oh, what could I use instead? And like, oh my gosh, how do we not all know this? Why is this not at the front page of, of the news? And why is my MP not fighting to get this stuff out of my everyday moisturizer, for example. And this is the one of the things we were talking about, Alex, before we jumped on, is that you will never run out of work in this area. <laughs> like you will always be needed, which is sad in a way, right? Yeah. It's um, This problem is not going to be fixed in our lifetime. And, you know, some of the research that we'll talk about when we're talking about some of these issues and these growths, they're from chemicals that are banned and they're still affecting us now. You know, so it is a really big topic and it's a scary one. I think when you start delving into toxins, it's a bit like, doom and gloom, right? <laughs> you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong. And I think it's um, what I really want to encourage people to do is go, well, what can I do differently? You know, don't focus on what you've been doing for the past 20 years, focus on what you can no. do today. Yes. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. Woman after my own heart. In my book, I actually have a line that is, you can't beat yourself up about what you didn't know. You can only choose to get excited about what you can change from now. That's li- that's the only option that is going to be good for your mental health. The yeah. rest is a waste of time and bad for your mental health. Absolutely. Yeah. So you mentioned perimenopause and menopause before, and I just want to sneak in a question here around that because 
that's another whole time where things go mm. off kilter. Um, we don't really have too many um, levers in terms of changing our products to, to yeah. affect that particular stage of life. But a lot of women don't know. Again, you said it yourself, because of how little support and research we've had around women's health and the changing aspects of uh, moving from having a cycle to not. Uh, and people often wonder, like, am I just supposed to bitch about all these symptoms with my friends or can I really get help? Or when do I need to actually reach out to somebody to get help? Like what's not normal in that phase? I mean, that, again, another three-day seminar, but there's obviously a, a couple of things in a nutshell. In a nutshell, menopause is a normal natural transition, okay? It, it should be. and It is. It is a normal natural transition. The problem lies because of the state of our health leading up to that. So the way that we're feeling in menopause is happening a decade before we even get there, right? It's the state of our hormones, our toxins, our stress, all of our and our adrenals a lot has a lot of it to do with it. So by the time we get to menopause, often women, they've got the kids, kids are starting to grow up, you know, they've, it's like a sponge that have been wrung out essentially. And by the time we have this super important transition, that's very, very different for the body and physiologically is kind of quite a feat. The body doesn't have what it needs to transition gracefully, let's put it that way. And then we start noticing that we're getting more hot flushes, we're getting more mood disturbances because there are estrogen receptors everywhere. You have estrogen receptors in your brain. We know that when we go through perimenopause, we're at higher risk of anxiety, depression, thyroid disorders. And then once we transition through that as women, we're at higher risk of cardiovascular disease, dementia, all these different things. So for women in this time, it's really tough because often by the time they get there, their resource bucket is fairly empty, okay? And that exacerbates anything that's going on. The adrenal glands, which control stress in the body and, and really help us deal with stress, are one of the main players, particularly when it comes to things like hot flushes and the emotional part of it. And when we look at the endocrine system coming back to that, it's synergistic within one another. So the adrenals will impact the thyroid, will impact the ovaries. So during perimenopause, yeah, it's the ovaries that are shutting down, but those accessory organs need to be working well because that's where your residual hormones are going to come from. So if the adrenals are really healthy, we're going to start producing a little bit of residual estrogen. We're going to not have as bad hot flushes. But the adrenal glands are often pretty smashed by the time we're in our 40s, right? The natural, the most common time to go through menopause, 45 to 55. So we've had the kids. Um, we've been working really chronically. We're underslept. And, and a lot of women, I feel in this time zone, by the time they hit menopause, they're still in postnatal depletion. They haven't even got back to the state that they had in their bodies before they were pregnant, you know, and um, this is just about not having adequate support, just understanding that pregnancy and childbirth is a huge energy resource that we have to go through. And it is pretty disheartening to see these patients that come in in this time and you, you ask them, when was the last time you felt great? It's like, well, how old are my kids you know, before, <laughs> oh, before that? Yeah, but that's so common, isn't it? Yeah. So mm. what I would say is if you, and obviously there's going to be women in all stages, if you're not in menopause and you're headed there, now is the time where you can make it good for yourself. If you're beginning to enter perimenopause, really aggressively start looking after yourself. Know that this change that's coming, we need to be on top of our game when it comes to health. So this is the time that can flip and help you to make that shift. If you're in the throes of it, seek help. You know, there are people that can definitely help you. And if you're post that, I think as women, we just need to really 
think about you still have a third of your life left to live after you exit menopause roughly, okay? So, and these should be the best times of our life and the times that we really, really need to knuckle down and look after ourselves. What I do know from the research that I've done is that toxins have a huge role to play when it comes to the onset of menopause, right? So there's um really good research on things like flame retardants, certain phthalates that show that the exposures will lead to entering menopause earlier, which we don't really want. Okay, The sooner we enter menopause, the sooner we lose the protective effects of estrogen. So it is something I think that we need to be really conscious of. Mm. And often we talk about excess estrogen and the damaging effects of, you know, there's so much chat about that. And I love that you've said the protective effects of estrogen can you expand on that and m- remind us that it actually really is an amazing hormone? Estrogen is amazing. So if you injure yourself, if you cut yourself, estrogen is there to heal. Okay, so And men have estrogen for this reason. So we need estrogen for tissue healing, tissue regeneration, circulation, and also mental health. As I said, there's lots of estrogen receptors in the brain. So it's a really important hormone The trouble is with estrogen that it can often be excessive, but the main issue I find is it's not so much that there's too much estrogen, it's that often there's too much estrogen but also not enough progesterone. So then we have this big gap. So if you think of estrogen and progesterone as buddies in the body and when they're abundant, they should both be at fairly abundant levels when we're in our menstruating cycles. So estrogen is something that is really, really helpful for women. And um, definitely there's a lot of estrogens in the environment that can interfere with our receptors and lead to more of these excessive estrogen symptoms. But for women with too much estrogen, it can it can cause problems, but also with women with too little estrogen, it can also cause problems. And I see that a lot, particularly when it comes to you know, calorie restriction and people that are doing a lot of CrossFit type stuff. Like if your body fat percentage is too low, it can go the other way. So it's not one or the other. Yeah, right. Um, And and then there's a lot of open and new discussion around hormone replacement therapy. I'd love your take on that, given you're probably looking at all the research as well and, you know, what used to be said as like, oh, it's so risky and it, you know, sends our risk levels of of cancers up big time. There seems to be now a a counter argument to that, that that was actually perhaps too soon out of the gate to make that statement um, in the medical community. And the lines are a bit more blurred about it potentially being a really great um, resource for a lot of women. Yeah, and it depends on what research you're reading. Okay. And um, we need to be, I think, aware in this conversation of research bias, where most studies that are getting published on drugs are positive studies and not negative studies. And there's some very good, there's a good TEDx talk on this. There's some good resources people can look into if you look at research bias. Um, So I'd be cautious with that. What I do know is that many women are on HRT, which is the pill, right? Right throughout their lives. Pill is a form of hormone replacement therapy. And the research is conflicting. It shows to be protective against some cancers, but can actually contribute to others. Okay. And I won't give you specifics because it's the kind of thing when you're talking about cancer, I don't want to get it wrong. (laughs) And it's 
and it can shift a little bit. But Dr. Felice Gersh talks about this on uh, the shift quite in quite a lot of detail. And she's an integrative um, gynecologist, OBYGYN from California. Oh, we'll put the link in the show notes. Yeah, she's so her expert series episode will come out in a few weeks. But in the C- series two of the shift, which is all around women's health, we talk about this really extensively. So if we talk about, let's say, the, let's start with the pill as a form of HRT, we know that there's risks involved in that. We know that it increases risks of depression and anxiety. And I've seen this so much in my patients. You know, we know that libido can drop off. We know that it can disturb certain things in the body because estrogen and progesterone that are produced by your body are not the same as synthetic estrogen and progestins that you're going to get in the pill. Okay, so, and it doesn't mean that people need to stop taking the pill. And for a lot of women, they need it, right? It's an important medication, but it is worth having that conversation and going, okay, I'm putting this into my body potentially for years. What's the risk versus benefit? You know, hormone replacement therapy um, smashes all of your nutrients. So there's lots of good evidence that shows that your B vitamins go down, zinc, you know, a lot of those important nutrients. So you need to be on a multivitamin, okay? Things, Things like that. Now, I used to be a lot more of a purist naturopath. So 15 years ago when I started practicing, I was very anti-HRT. I was like, no. And at the time, as you said, the research was pretty damning, didn't look good. Um, And what I find now, the longer that I practice, the more patients I see that are resistant to natural treatments, being able to get them where they need to go when it comes to their menopausal symptoms. And I believe this is because of toxins and genetics and just every everything just seems to be really accelerating like that. Um, so for me, I have patients that I will send to have a look at hormonal therapy. Okay. But what I would say is that there's so many effective natural things that for most women work really, really well. And for some women, it just can't get them there. And my thought, and this is just my hypothesis, is because they're receptors are damaged, you know, and it can be damaged from toxins in utero or throughout their life. But I do think this receptor damage from what I've read and researched is one of the problems that we face because you can't fix a receptor. Yeah. So you can put in extra hormones. So you have more response, but from what we know, we can't really repair these receptors fully. And I think this is why for some women, some of these hormonal treatments really aren't as effective as they should be. Mm, fascinating. And so what's the difference between taking the pill, say, to treat endo or PCOS? And of course, treat is so not the right word there, but I think because it's traditionally been used to, in inverted commas, treat, let's put it that way, um, or PCOS or regular periods or heavy periods or anything else that's happening for women, the pill seems to be way overprescribed for versus addressing it naturally. Yeah. One thing, one thing I will say is like, I give doctors a fair bit of slack, like on Instagram, I'm talking, I'm often recalling counts of doctors that aren't doing stuff right for my patients, right? An example of that would be, okay, you've got this rather than investigate, let's go on the pill. But from a doctor's perspective, that's all they have. That's all they have in their toolbox. So if someone comes in with PCOS, um, they'll have a look at stuff and they'll be like, okay, well, you can go on the pill or, or what? There's there's really no options. Oh, you're having a baby, so you can't go on the pill. Okay, well, we'll probably have to go into IVF. 
Okay, so there's not a lot of options in their toolbox where for us as naturopaths, we're, we're truly blessed. We have herbs that increase, decrease estrogen, progesterone. We have herbs that work on insulin resistance. We have herbs that work on the hypothalamic ovarian axis to help to regulate stuff. We have herbs that work on stress and sleep, and we're able to actually make really meaningful change in these type of issues. Um, but for a lot of doctors, they want to do something and that's what they do. The issue is with the pill being used so freely and without that background information is women aren't being told the risks and women aren't being given other options. So this is something that we see a, a lot of at the shift clinic. So the pill, I think for some people is really necessary. And examples of that might be patients that have horrific pain or endo or, you know, other conditions where it's really helpful. But for other women, I find that potentially it's not going to be the best thing long term. And you do have to weigh up that risk versus benefit. Yeah. And and thank you for um, being grey there, because I think a lot of people often listen to podcasts and, you know, it, it, a lot of people present the perfect way to do things or the ideal natural way to do things. And then you know, you never want someone feeling ashamed on your watch, sitting there listening, going, but this is the only thing that's worked. Everyone's got a line they have to draw for the things that they don't do in a low-tox way or a perfect way. And I think it, the sooner we all cut ourselves some slack for whatever that is in your own life, the sooner you can actually celebrate the other things that you can modulate and work on. And and that's got to count for something, right? Yeah. I mean, my mission and our mission, like our vision at Shift is to change the face of healthcare. And my personal mission in my lifetime is to have these options of natural therapies alongside conventional medicine. Okay. That's a big ask. I've got like, what, 40, 50 years to achieve yeah, that. Yeah. Um, but this is the world that we need to live in if we want optimal healthcare, because there is a role for both. And if we can collaborate and work together. So I can hate on doctors a bit because some of them, to be honest, are just not practicing well. Um, but I also work with so many doctors and have so many amazing clinicians that when we do work together, we get this amazing synergy for the patient. And it's not just about the treatment results. It's that patient feeling held and supported not gaslighted, not that nobody's talking to each other. And this is one of the big things I think with women's health and these type of things is you have these things that work together. You have thyroid issues and women's reproductive issues, hand in hand, both of like the thyroid will affect that, but the endocrinologist doesn't talk to the gynecologist. Okay. So you've got to see both. Oh, and now I have diabetes. Okay. Now you've got to go and see someone else for that. You know, it's um, it's just crazy the way that everything is so compartmentalized. Yet there's no conversation between mm. these these practitioners. Yeah, I feel really grateful that functional medicine has come along to um, broaden the scope of doctors in terms of the tools they have, but in terms of also realizing, oh wow, so you know, my client telling me about my patient telling me about that naturopath, like I've actually got to start listening to what that naturopath was saying. And maybe we could actually talk. And, you know, I think you, we're starting to see it and it's really exciting. Yeah, it is. Mm. It will get there and it's changing. But yeah, I think every every little thing that we do to walk to, to work towards that goal is going to be a positive thing. And this podcast mm. is one of them, right? Mm, totally. Mm. And so leading on from uh, talking about the pill, the pill often gets prescribed for things that uh, like fibroids, for example. I've had so many uh, people in our community be on the pill because they had heavy periods as another example. Um, 
And I wanted to also then bring into the conversation things like polyps and cysts, because these are things that shouldn't be growing in an ideal world, but they do. And uh, you know, so many women, like maybe they get their post childbirth scan or a few years later, you think, oh, I'm 40. Maybe I should just check out how everything's going down there. Um, and you get told you have a polyp. And I remember this happened to me about three years ago, I think it was four. And my gorgeous functional med doctor, um, uh, at the time was like, oh my God, like you're, you're the low tox queen. How on earth do you have a polyp? I'm like, okay, living in a water damaged building for seven years, there's a start uh, in terms of super stressed out system. Um, and she recommended that I have a chat to my naturopath because my naturopath is trained in herbal medicine. And so we had a chat. She made me up a mix. Uh, I also saw an endocrinologist at St. Vincent's who said, uh, look, if you feel like there's something you can do over the next couple of months, let's book another appointment. And if it's not gone, then we can talk about surgical intervention and I was just like, surely not. I mean, you know, I'm always open. If you really need to have the day saved, I'm open. But um, probably not the best choice of words for the situation at hand. <laughs> anyway. Um, and Alex, but, was it a uterine polyp or was it, it a cervical? It was uterine. Yeah. Yep. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and so we basically approached it with, you know, an amazing mix of stringent herbs that were all about shrinking things that shouldn't be growing. And, I mean, it's just magical that our beautiful plant world concoctions can can support us in this way, right? Uh, and the polyp was gone. And the endocrinologist was amazed and, but, and really open and happy for me. And, and I was so refreshed by that whole exchange uh, that he didn't make me then come back in in two weeks and then go into the clinic and get it removed. It's like, okay, it's not a disastrous thing to find, so try, you know, and I think that's a really great first step in the right direction. But a lot of people don't know what to try or don't even know that there's another option. I feel really grateful that I did. So um, can we just define each of these things, because there's probably differences between them, fibroid, polyp and cyst, and then talk about what kind of setting they proliferate in. Awesome. Let's let's go into that. Um, it's actually really cool what your body can do, I think. And I think that the reason that we get a lot of these things reproductively is because of the amount of change that's happening. You know, like we're talking about cellular turnover, cells are changing throughout the cycle. So it leaves more room for these growths to occur and the cellular division to go weird and wrong, right? So we'll start with fibroids. Um, So there is some evidence that they say that most women will have some kind of fibroids. Like if you did an autopsy on every woman when they died, there'd be some kind of a growth there, right? Um, It happens a lot for women as they kind of get into their 30s and 40s more often and it's almost like a small tumor and I think these these growths they freak people out because they think oh my god do I have cancer you know like I have a growth I have a polyp what's my risk and that's where what I get patients coming back with but for a fibroid it can happen on the outside of the uterus inside the uterine muscle and also on the inside of the uterus but if you can imagine if you have a tissue that's growing and shedding every month and you've got this sort of little bumpy 
you know, growth there, it means that every time that endometrium is trying to grow and replicate, et cetera, it's going to be a bit weird, right? Because the surface isn't smooth. There's different blood vessels that would normally be there. And therefore women can get really heavy periods, really painful periods, and a bit of an irregular bleeding pattern as well. It can just be, seem a little bit weird. So anytime someone has heavy periods, painful periods, they have to get an ultrasound. And I know like that seems like common sense, but often women don't. So they'll go to their doctor and they're not getting the right investigations. The issue with fibroids compared to polyps and cysts to a certain degree is often they can't be removed. Okay. They're in the tissue. They're, they're unable to do that. So I've had a lot of patients, not actually, not a lot, like a handful of patients over the years where they've had fibroids so big that they cause problems. They've been offered a hysterectomy, so removal of the uterus, but they don't want to. So like, Catherine, help me. I'm like, okay, your fibroid's the size of an apple, but let's give it a go, <laughs> right? And uh, you can, and because it's so visual, you can see it shrinking and changing using those kind of herbs that you talked about, working on estrogen, working on diet. So, and I'm not saying that it always can completely resolve things, but definitely the body can go backwards and change that tissue. I've seen that happen over and over again. So that's fibroids. Polyps grow more as like little growths that are sticking out, right? So they can be almost like a skin tag, you know, like just a, just a little growth that's happening. They can be pedunculated, which means they can be like on little stems and poking out. So if you imagine if you've got a growth of tissue that's got a stem, it's easy for that to twist and to shut off the blood supply. And that's when we can get um, a really big bleed sometimes, or we can get the episodes of pain or cramping or discomfort. The symptoms are sort of similar where we have sometimes heavy or excessive or weird bleeding. Mid-cycle bleeding would be a red flag to have a look at these type of things. As I mentioned, you can get a polyp inside of the uterus, but we can also get them on our cervix. And that can be a really big cause of pain after sex, in, um, bleeding after sex, and also just mid-cycle spotting, weird bleeding patterns. Anytime you have a weird bleeding pattern that's outside of your period, you have to get it investigated, okay, um, always. Uh, and, then, you know, yes, it's normal to have a bit of spotting before your period, but if it's like day seven of your cycle and then your period's finished and stuff's happening, definitely get that investigated. Okay, so for polyps, we know that as we're perimetopausal, they're more common and they are associated with excess weight as well. That can kind of feed into it. But um, it's interesting for us naturopathically, we would always look at polyp as a tissue dysfunction, right? And what that means is very bit more of an old school naturopathic thing where the tissue integrity isn't right. We would put it in the same boat as things like prolapse of varicose veins, um, any type of tissue, you know, if we're getting injuries easily, like we're tearing things all the time, it's like the structure and integrity aren't there. Otherwise, that tissue couldn't balloon out. It couldn't polyp, right? Same deal with things like diverticulitis, like just the tissue integrity isn't there. So we'd be looking at using things to support that. And then cysts is an interesting one because it can come in all forms, right? It might talk like, if you talk about things like PCOS poly polycystic ovarian syndrome, they're sort of cysts, but they're, they're sort of not, right? And there's a bit of a interesting research and conversations that we've had about that. If you listen to Lara Bryden, the way that she describes it on the shift is really like that's sort of normal. You know, as your ovaries do their thing and release eggs, that kind of cystic pattern can be normal. So it's not necessarily mean there's a problem, but then we can get ovarian cysts um, and they're very, very common. And the often where they'll come up is women will burst, have one burst. They'll be in significant pain, end up in emergency. They'll do some ultrasounds and go, oh yeah, you probably just had a burst cyst. You'll be okay. <laughs> 
But when we have a burst cyst, it's going to spill its contents into your pelvic cavity, right? So if it's an endometrioma and it will be filled with blood, that's like more of an endometrial cyst, it's going to spill all of this old blood into the pelvic cavity. Your body's not going to like that. It's going to be like, oh, what's going on? Let's clean it up. And then all the cells and inflammation will come with that, you know, if it's filled with pus or fluid, your body is not going to like that either. So we can have really small cysts, we can have larger cysts, but they are relatively common. You know, and this is where I think we do need to have scans to have a look. An ultrasound is easy. You know, it's so depending on the type, it can be a bit invasive. If we're having a transvaginal ultrasound. It's like it's not your favorite day of the week. No, but, um, not your favorite. To really understand what's happening with these things I think is important what's driving them because with these type of conditions like we do know particularly with fibroids that there is a higher risk if you have high exposure to toxins estrogen drives it definitely you know so the drivers of fibroids is this excessive estrogen and estrogen is proliferative it's the hormone that when your body's growing the endometrium to get ready for that baby, it makes all the blood vessels and it makes that endometrium plump and juicy. So if you have a fibroid there, it's going to help its blood vessels. It's going to help it to grow. Okay. So this is where doing testing is important. The blood testing that's done through doctors for estrogen is like the first step. They do what's called a stradiol E2. We want to look at that. But for my patients, I'm doing Dutch urinary hormonal profiles, which is looking at E1, 2, 3, and then the metabolites that it's creating from that, which gives you more of a risk of things like risk from what we call like bad prolific estrogens, ones that are going to cause problems for you. So yeah, there's a lot to it, right? <laughs> yeah. And so really, yes, you can have the fiber and you can work on that and the herbs and everything. But if you haven't actually then looked at the whole picture of the whole human in terms of what's at the stage for that to proliferate, then chances are of recurrence probably being much higher than if you yeah. did do a full picture workup. Absolutely. And this is why when people get polyps removed and things remain the same, often they'll come again. Like, oh, it's just something that I get. So I get a scan every year and then I get them removed. Um, and same goes with endometriosis. This is why surgery doesn't work because they go in, they clean up, they take out the tissue, but all of the driving factors are exactly the same. So of course, if you have the same environment, most likely things are going to happen the same. We haven't really made any, any deep and meaningful change. And um you know, this kind of goes for most health conditions, but with these things that shouldn't be there, we need your body should be able to regulate and go, this shouldn't be there. And it's not going to be able to do that if you're not in peak health. Yeah, it's it's such an aha, isn't it, when you realize um that recurrence of pretty much anything means you haven't actually treated why it's happening in the first place. You can kill, you can cut it out, you can do a lot of things to make it go away right now. But uh, it doesn't mean it's gone forever if you haven't looked at the, the big picture. Yeah, it's interesting because I was just recording an episode of the podcast today about thrush and um, with Moira Bradfield, who's like a vaginal microbiome specialist. Really interesting. And uh, we talk about this concept of recurrent thrush, right? So a woman, she gets thrush. It's the chemist, she gets the canister or the over-the-counter fungal. She'll do it, it goes away, it comes back. She does it, it goes away. And that's because there's so many other factors involved with the vaginal pH, the hormonal levels, the gut microbiome. And we're like flogging this dead horse, like doing the same stuff over and over and then wondering why we're not getting a different result. So it is that that shift in paradigm um, in where people traditionally with a medical model, it's like, okay, well, you're sick, you have this, here's your remedy. Well, we need to really shift that to look at what are the complexities that I need to look at in order to be completely well. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, thrush, gut health, for me, going through SIRS and the whole mould experience and what that taught me um, is that the the full picture of factors that can contribute to a recurrence of anything really need addressing. Otherwise, you're just going to constantly, you could do every gut health protocol on the planet, but if your nervous system is jacked up and peristalsis is stopped because you're in a mouldy environment, then you, none of those protocols are ever going to work. Yep. And I see it over and over again with patients. And mm-hmm. it's, and I think the the issue is when that happens, if you don't have the right support or knowledge, you'll fall off and you give up and you think yeah. that things aren't working. And But at what it is, it's not necessarily that things aren't working. It's that you need to broaden the horizons, look at bringing in some other things and push through that roadblock and get the knowledge that you need to keep going. Mm. Yeah, 100%. And so... In terms of um, setting that stage, stress has come up a couple of times. What are some of your favourite ways to support a reduction of stress that are also practical to the person in their 30s, 40s, 50s, where there are often kids, elderly parents, career peaks? You know, I mean, it's such a cocktail recipe for disaster, basically, when it comes to our biology. And yet ah the women do it all and so what are some of your favorite ways to support women through that I think you're right I think the way that we live our lives is just a recipe for failure like when it comes to our nervous system and stress however I also really believe that we are our own worst enemies when it comes to our stress and most of it is happening in our minds okay and it's the way that we're responding to stress and the way that we are needing to be responsible for the stress we're creating for ourselves. Okay, so we'll we'll talk to that a little bit. One of the things that I sometimes get my patients to do is an existence inventory. What are you spending all of your time on each and every day consciously? Okay, so when you wake up in the morning, what are you doing, et cetera? And one of the biggest parts of that is what is pervasing into your life that's taking away from your ability to create peace and calm for yourself. The biggest one is social media and devices, right? For us, for our children, it's a massive one. I'm doing all these talks in schools at the moment to kids around devices and how it is causing anxiety and doing all of this stuff. But when we're not present, when we have no moments, we cannot defrag and de-stress. So normally, you know, pre-devices, when I was a kid, if you went to the bank, which you don't even do anymore, let's say you go somewhere, you're waiting (laughs) in a a queue, what do you do? You just wait, Yeah. right? You, You be, You look at the ceiling, you think about what you want to do with your friends on the weekend. Yeah. Yep. You just be. There's more Mm. moments where we're just being. And I think even if you think back to it, like the the entertainment was connection. You would sit down, you would have a cup of tea with someone or you would read or you would do something that really didn't tax the brain and the nervous system in the way that it does. So one of the really practical things is keep your phone out of your bedroom. It is not to be the first thing you look at when you wake up and it is not to be the last thing you look at before you go to bed. Because undoubtedly, it's not going to make you feel better and peaceful to be scrolling through Instagram or Facebook. You know, you don't want to be triggered by that stuff. So creating boundaries for yourself around technology and things that pervade into your life. The other one is thinking about, are you being a people pleaser and saying yes to too much and just trying Mm -hmm. to help everyone else instead of yourself? I love that that came up. I always say, do a diary audit. Every Sunday night, you look at that diary and you go, Mm. Did I say yes to that? Those are the things that you need to tune into and stop. 
Yeah, it, mm. it is. It's And this is us reclaiming our sovereignty a little bit and going, well, I need to be self-responsible for the state that I'm in. Yes, I'm anxious. Yes, I'm stressed. There's work deadlines. But did I, am I continually choosing jobs that are making me feel anxious and making me overwork and do hours? Am I not leaving the office even though I could? Who's, whose choice is that truly? No, and you and you see the patterning. And if we want to go just that one layer deeper, a lot of the work that we do at the Shift Clinic is on this emotional realm and looking at cycles of similarity. How are you creating cycles of similarity in your life that leave you feeling the same way that you're feeling, whether that is anxious or guilty or stressed or whatever it is? You know, so we do have to be really self-responsible for how we're creating some of these things, and then we can make some some really important decisions to change it. You know, it's great that when people have a health crisis, it can cause them to make the decision. They get diagnosed with cancer or end up in hospital or have a car accident or whatever it is. But it shouldn't have to be that extreme for us to make a decision to look after ourselves. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love to think that we could maybe evolve into our circuit breakers not being quite so dramatic. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I, that's my mantra for my life. <laughs> I'll let you know how it goes. Yeah, yeah. I'll, 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 we can exchange notes and then share with people. We're enlightened. We figured it out. <laughs> oh, too funny, but not funny. But you have to laugh um, because that's actually a part of de-stressing. Um, one of my favorite things that I've actually just brought into um, my life is. Um, very consciously choosing to bring comedy in. So either gravitating towards my friends that I naturally seem to laugh and have a bunch of gags with, um, lighthearted podcast guests even. I think this morning Carrie Jones and I, I think we made a serious face like once. <laughs> it's just like laugh, laugh, laugh. We're finding a way to laugh even though we're talking about some really complex women's health issues. Like it's so important watching crazy old movies with classic comedians and it's so good for the soul in a especially like if you think about wellness and the people it attracts it's people often on a circuit breaker who are feeling really really crap uh who have a whole bunch of stuff going on whether it's a super complex puzzle or going to be something easy to fix right now they feel awful you gotta laugh you gotta find ways to bring the joy in because it's a huge part of healing Oh, I love it. And one of the things I think as well is I think when we're not doing the right thing or when shit hits the fan or when stuff's happening over and over, we really go into that negative and that beating ourselves up and blaming mm-hmm. and shaming. We've got to have comedy about it. You know, yeah. like sometimes I'm just like universe, like what the hell? Yeah. You know, what's, what is this? You know, and you have to laugh at yourself, I think, and bring that humor in about yes. it because otherwise it just becomes so serious. I know. And, you know, I had a coaching client the other day and she was like, it's just that, you know, with my comp gene underperforming, it didn't like, and it was so, she knew so much about some seriously complex bio, biological happenings. And I was like, when was the last time you just went out with your kids and like went bowling and did something silly? And she couldn't tell me when the last time was. And I I think it is so amazing and empowering that we have access to all this information to really understand what's happening on a cellular level, what's happening with our genes, what's happening in our environments, but missing those basics of tuning into how stressed we are and practically diffusing that stress 
so that we have some ebb and flow in life is just as important in a complex medical picture as a comp gene. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. If not, maybe more. Yeah, mm. I completely agree. Mm. Yeah. yeah, so so interesting. And so, okay, so that stress piece, lots of different tools there. Do you have a couple of favourite desert island herbs for stress? Yeah, definitely withania. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I call it withania, not ashwagandha. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of people do because it's highly adulterated. The problem with herbal medicine is that a lot of the stuff you're getting over the counter, you don't know that you're really getting it. Yeah. You know, so I'm always cautious with recommending too many specific herbs because I don't want someone to go and take it and go, that didn't work. Mm. You know, when really it might not have been the right thing or the right thing. They didn't dose have the practitioner kind of grade. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but for, for withania, it's safe with pretty much anyone. There's not really a lot of contraindications with it. And it is one of my go-tos. I use a bucket load of it, you know, mm. le- you know, liters and liters and liters of that stuff. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And for so myself that- and also for my patients. Yeah. And so to clarify, that's for if you're like in the stressed, jacked out, because if you're a bit low and slow and down, then that could actually be worse, right? So again, it's about actually knowing how you're responding to stress. It depends on the patient. So with withania, it breaks down excessive cortisol. So for me, if someone's low in my practice, I'm going to be using withania with my energizing adaptogens that are boosting cortisol. So there's this kind of synergy between them. What is really unique to herbal medicine is these adaptogens. So adaptogens help your body to adapt to stress. In herbal medicine, it's the only place that it exists, right? And there's a handful of them. We're talking withania, our ginsengs, rhodiola is one of them. But we know from research that when you're under stress, it makes your physiology work better. So I can't take my patient out of her high-stress job, but I can give her some really beautiful adaptogens that change the way that she's physiologically reacting to the environment. You know, And this is where that stress piece comes in. We have these tools, use them. Go and see a naturopath, go and see a herbalist, go and see a nutritionist, like get some medicine to actually help you deal with this. I feel like for me, without herbs, I couldn't do what I'm going to do. Writing my second book, I'm a single mom of a 10-year-old. I'm running a practice. I've got like 14 staff there. Like it's 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 too much. It's busy. Yeah. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. really busy and I love it, but I, I need a little something. And that for me is herbs and then just really focusing on my self-care and making sure I've got what I need. Mm. And really adaptogens from what you've just said, help you move from, oh my God, I have to overwhelm to how exciting that I get to and I can, you know, and that's really how we want to feel. And that's the positive stress. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And stress, you know, in its purity is, is good for your body. The problem is we're chronically stressed. We have no rest you know, it's not like an animal that almost gets eaten by something and then yeah, like, yeah. Oh, stress and then it's like just chilling for the next week eating grass. Like mm. we don't have that chill time, you know, more now than ever. We have no space. And I think particularly since the pandemic as well, people just don't have that space and rhythm of looking after themselves and taking space and holidays and technology detox. You know, how many people mm-hmm. have a week off, week off their phone a year? Not many. Not many. (laughs) No. And I have to say, I've never had a dog until last August when we got our rescue buddy, uh, a 14-month-old retriever. That was was a handful of a first few months that actually put me into more stress than I've ever experienced in my life. And and that's a whole other conversation. But what I have learned from him now that he's a part of our lives and it's all working really well and we've got the support we need during my work day, 
fantastic. But what I've learned from him is how amazing and simple you can make life if you do what you got to do. So for him, it's pee, poo, eat and exercise. And then you just make sure you relax a lot. <laughs> like, wow. So I spent the first few months being jealous. <laughs> like, seriously, is this your life? I actually feel jealous. But now I think, no, I've done everything I've got to do. Don't add something now because you've got bonus time because you got everything done. Now, why not actually just be for a bit? Just go for a walk. And my dog has taught me that. That's really cool. I mm. think we, as women, we need to relearn that. We need yeah. to learn how to just be. Mm-hmm. One of my rituals is when I wake up in the morning, I make a cup of tea and I sit on the deck and I drink it. I don't listen to podcasts. I don't read books. I just sit and I look and I drink a cup of tea, mm. you know, and um, it's moments of space. It doesn't yeah. have to be huge. Make yourself a cup of tea and go and sit on the grass and just be a human for a bit. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so I want to come back to the body of our conversation so that we can wrap it up and women feel like they know exactly what to do if one of these things pops up and their investigation plan and their options. Um, And we talked about scans a couple of times, how easy it is to get an ultrasound. Um, Wouldn't that be nice if women got an annual ultrasound covered by Medicare as a preventative health measure? That, That would, I mean... You know, you hand over your couple of hundred bucks and you just think, really? I'm literally making sure I don't cost this government too much money. And um also anyway. mentioned that people pay a Medicare levy. Mm. It's not it's not free. It's no. um, you know, it's provided, but we are paying for it through our taxes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh we do get a bit of money back. Thank you for that. Um, but the interesting thing about getting a scan is you can't just book in and get it done any day of the month. There's actually optimal time of the month to get it done. Can you share that so that we get the best possible picture of what's going on? Yeah, this is really important because it's also something that some doctors don't understand. Okay, A lot of general practitioners in Australia particularly, they have a very poor understanding of the of the women's reproductive health, of the menstrual cycle and the hormones of what's happening. So scans are a, an example of that. So we want to have it in the follicular. Do we finish bleeding? Okay. And the reason is they're going in, they're scanning. We want that endometrium to be kind of quiet. Yeah. Like where it's, there's, there's not too much action going on. So there's not blood, they're not bleeding, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so best- can I just say, um, Catherine, because it just bugged out there for a little second, we want to have it in the follicular phase and for the completely uninitiated, what does that mean? So when you get your period, you begin the follicular phase of the cycle. So it is the first in a, in a normal, let's say 28, 30 day cycle. It's normally that first half, that first 14 days. Okay. So for, for women with longer cycles, so let's say you've got PCOS or irregular cycles and it might be 40, 50. Um, typically you're going to ovulate 14 days before you get your period, if you're having an ovulatory cycle. But for the purpose of this, you get your period. And then as soon as you finish bleeding is a good time to go in and book that. Now, if you're not bleeding and you have amenorrhea or you're anovulatory or nothing's happening there, then 
anytime. You've just got to go in and get it and, and see see what happens. For my women with fertility stuff, often I'm getting them to do like a day 21 scan, which is where the embryo would normally be implanting, right? Because I'm looking at the thickness of the endometrium and that kind of thing. But for diagnostics, the first half of the cycle is better. Fantastic advice. Thank you. And so we find out we've got a fibroid, a cyst that shouldn't be growing, or a polyp. Next step is fine to check in with your doctor, even fine to talk to an endocrinologist, but bring in your who? Naturopath. Yes. Definitely. Or acupuncturist mm-hmm. as well, potentially. Yes. Particularly Thank you for mentioning doing, them. Absolutely. Yeah, particular, particularly if they're doing herbal medicine. I do think herbal medicine is pretty key in this. And acupuncture is an amazing modality, but you have to remember that in the traditional Chinese medicine context, it was always meant to be used alongside herbs as a part of the five-point treatment. Okay, so acupuncture, herbs, body work, etc. But naturopathy, the process is if you came in to see us is we're looking at what is the landscape of the entire health and what what are we going to do there? So we're going to do hormonal testing. We're going to have a look at general health testing as well. Definitely things like iron and vitamins to see where does the the structure lie? What do we need to have a look at? It's going to be different if you are on a fertility journey or if you're not. Okay. So if you're on a fertility journey and this comes up, then you do need to go then and check in with your specialist. Okay, go and see the gynecologist, fertility specialist. Okay, what is the implication for this on your ability to have that embryo implant, to carry the baby, that kind of thing? So that's where it can get a lot more technical and tricky. There may be surgical options. So if there's polyps and they're causing problems, they may be able to have a look at that. But when it comes to things like fibroids and these other growths, there really isn't any treatment besides surgery um, or putting you on a hormone replacement therapy like the pill. So, you know, or potentially even putting you into menopause, which can be done sometimes, you know, particularly when there's a fertility context. So it's fairly radical, but from our point of view, we want to just work with what the body has. And this is where naturopathy is not the only solution. You know, um, the conventional medical isn't the only solution. Sometimes you'll need both and other times you can just go down that pathway at the shift clinic in our Brisbane clinic. I'll work alongside our acupuncturist, but also we have a kinesiologist there that would go in and have a look at what's going on emotionally. We know from research that there's a very strong association between trauma for women and particularly sexual trauma and reproductive issues and endometriosis and pain. So we want to make sure that we're covering that landscape of the health. Okay, what does it mean for you and why has your body decided to express this particular thing? Yeah, so so key and so then in terms of potential treatment options we're looking at potentially bringing in TCM covering off uh whether there's any unresolved traumas uh herbs uh and looking at the stress piece am I missing anything key there in the holistic yeah, it's because we, we could talk about it all day, but ultimately if someone's coming to see me for these issues, I'm treating the patient, right? So they might come in for fibroids and they're on their form, they might write fibroids, heavy periods, painful periods. But then as we dig into it, we might find, oh, okay, you're constipated, right? So and you have been your entire life. Okay, when we're constipated, that means now your estrogen and your toxins are going to be higher because you can't eliminate that's a really key part of treatment. Oh, look, the thyroid sluggish. Okay, the thyroid sluggish, that's going to contribute to the constipation as well. And then we might find that they're not sleeping during the night. So they're not sleeping. They're not detoxifying while they're asleep. They're not regenerating. We need to sort that out. So can you see how 
when you start digging into it, it doesn't mean you need to treat everything you have. But when you come to see someone like us, the difference is we're really looking at everything and going, if we do these three things, it's going to make an impact across the board. Okay. These are the things that we need to focus on dietary wise. These are the systems that need to be corrected. But otherwise, if you're not taking that holistic approach, it means sometimes it's two steps forward and one step back because you're making headway in these areas and then things aren't working. One of the things I see a lot is women taking those um, retail products that are like for hormones. So, you know, they're basically a blend of every herb that would work on hormones, you know. So it's for us, it's a little bit like a machine gun effect. If you splatter everything, something's going to stick. But the issue with that is, yes, that might be working on those hormonal areas, but what about the thyroid that keeps knocking stuff out? What about the fact that you're deficient in vitamin D and you don't actually have the cofactors? Vitamin D deficiency is actually a risk factor for fibroids. Interesting, right? And and probably every disease on the planet, really. Um, but we want to really understand, are you missing anything? You know, And this is where I think people, they do good work and they find some stuff and they do some Googling and they order themselves some products and they might get a little bit of the way and they're like, I, I just haven't figured it out. You, know, you don't have a massive science degree and the body has a lot of moving pieces. Get someone to help you. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think there's nothing wrong with some healthy curiosity and uh, and subclinical dosages to just kind of have a little dabble and see if something's going to, you know, like move the needle a bit. Um, but the detailed investigation, if you've had niggles that have been going on for a while or things like this pop up, there's a reason. And I think the word landscape is perfect because there are a number of aspects to a healthy landscape. Um, and uh, and until you actually investigate what isn't healthy on that landscape, you're just going to end up getting the same things over and over again. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Catherine, that was fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Uh, an absolute pleasure to bring your awesome work to our gorgeous community. And uh, we can find you at? Everywhere. Um, my podcast, <laughs> the, sh- my the, podcast shift. the Shift. Yeah. Yeah. So season one is gut health. Season two is women's health. So you can find that anywhere you find podcasts. Uh, you can go to theshiftclinic.com mm. or you can find me on Instagram. Mm. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's been amazing. And that is today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder, we have so many fantastic shows in our archives these days. If this particular topic was helpful to you, head over to lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast and click on the podcast directory, which gives you food, body, home, mind, and environmental health topics segmented so you can see all the shows that we've done in all of those areas and head straight to what you want. A reminder, we also have 10 fabulous e-courses that I've written with various doctors, naturopaths, health professionals, and experts over the years to support you on your low-tox journey, whether it's making daily swaps, getting ready to make babies, looking after your inflammation, you can hit the courses tab on lowtoxlife.com to explore those. And lastly, I would love to meet you on socials. Go and head over to at lowtoxlife on Instagram or find us on Facebook. It's always such a pleasure to chat and see how you guys are going when you share favorite shows and share them with your friends. I absolutely love that. A little reminder, of course, that all of our shows are not intended as medical advice. They are intended to open the minds and hearts of people and maybe help you explore something you hadn't considered yet, but please always check in with your health professional. And one last little request, 
If you have time to leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast, that would just mean the world to me because it helps us get out there and have other people have confidence that that thing they're considering pressing play on is absolutely worth it. I'll catch you for the next show you tune into. Thanks for joining me again. This is Alex Stewart, founder of Low Tox Life.